Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's accessible to us. We thank you that it is powerful. We pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to your word this morning, um, that you will speak through Ryan and that his words will fall aside and that your word will hold fast. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. We're continuing in a series through the parables and, and this one we're tackling what is commonly known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, I want, want to draw your attention to the fact that the Bible never calls this guy a Good Samaritan. That's just what we call it. It's interesting where that phrase comes from, right? I can remember an instance that you might remember on January 2nd, 2007, at the 137th Street subway station in Manhattan, New York. There, there was a man named Wesley Autry who was with his two girls getting ready to get on a train. And then all of a sudden, something very very serious happened. There was, there was a 20-year-old man who was a college student who was also in that train station who was having a seizure. I don't know that they knew it at the time, but he actually fell onto the tracks of the train. And Wesley was right there with him. Now, keep in mind, he's got his two young girls with him. And he does the unthinkable at this point. He jumps down onto the tracks. This is a true story. He jumps down onto the tracks, and he's, he's attempting to rescue the man and bring him back up on the platform. But as he gets down there and starts to wrangle the man, he realizes that he does not have enough time to get the man back up on the tracks and himself back up on the tracks. And so he does the unthinkable. He, he positions the man in between the tracks and places his body on top of him, prostrate, and they lay down as, as thinly as they can, and the train passes over top of them. This is a crazy story. And, and the, the news, the, the media stories that came out after that, and this, this man is still a hero to this day. He walks through the, the borough of Harlem and Manhattan, and people still know this guy. And the news story came out, and it said, you know, this guy is the subway Superman. He's the Harlem hero. And, and even one of the headlines read this, Good Samaritan Saves Man on the Tracks. 
It's a remarkable story about instinct, sacrifice, and courage. And it is the way that we typically think about the story of the Good Samaritan in the Bible. I don't want to take away anything from Wesley Autry's story, but I do want you to consider, is that the point of this parable? To go and be like a Wesley Autry kind of guy, to go and to sacrifice and, and to do these things like this that seem outlandish. But as we consider this, this parable that we look at today, I think that there's something else that's at play that we really need to consider in our exploration of Luke chapter 10. And, and it's this right here, that giving mercy begins with receiving mercy. Would you say that with me? Giving mercy begins with receiving mercy. All right, so let's dig into the scriptures in Luke chapter 10. I'm, I'm basically just going to follow this outline that, 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 uh, that the scriptures give us today, where, where there's a, a few characters at play here. There's actually two. There's Jesus, and there's an expert in the law. And then the story that he tells have, has, uh, have, has four characters in it. So um, the first question that the expert in the law asked Jesus is this. Um, he says, you know, how do we get eternal life? How, 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 do I, how do I be saved? And, and, and the answer that Jesus gives him is this, by loving God and neighbor. Let, let's read it to refresh our memories. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, and he says, Teacher, uh, what should I do to, eternal, to, to inherit eternal life? And, and, and Jesus kind of gives him a dose of his own medicine here, doesn't he? He says, I don't know. You're the expert in the law. Why don't you tell me? And so the, the, the man responds and and, uh, and, and, and he says this, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. Come on, Jesus, you know this. And then he says, but there's an also, also this other responsibility side of things that Leviticus chapter you know, 19 talks about, Jesus, and it's to, to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and Jesus, he answers him the same way that he asked him. He says, okay, if you do this, then you'll live. Now, the way that the guy asked the question is this, Jesus, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And he, he, he has a presupposition that's very dangerous that I think many people in our world have today, that it is something that he can actually do in and of himself to get uh, this eternal life. And, and I, I think there's something that's helpful here, because a lot of times we think about salvation in terms of... Of, of, you know, it's, it's grace alone, faith alone, you know, all of these things that the scriptures teach. But, but the, what the great commandment says that, that this man quotes that Jesus uh, agrees with is that there is also a responsibility toward neighbor as well that's wrapped up in eternal life. Now think about that for a second because it, it's reiterated over and over. Even listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Very familiar passage. I want to read it for you really quick. Paul writes this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So we could stop the reading of the Scripture right there, and we would agree completely with that. But Jesus, there's nothing I can do. This lawyer's in the wrong. How could he assume that it's something that he could do? But the scripture goes on to say this, for we are his workmanship. In the Greek, it's the same word that we get poem from. We are his poem, we are his story, we are his craft, we are his workmanship. And we're created in Christ Jesus. That means that our lives reflect Christ Jesus. For good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the relationship between good works and salvation? Salvation comes and good works flow through the life that's been saved. And so what you see is that they're, they're, in, they're, they're, they're interconnected, they're interwoven together. You have a saved person, you have a person whose life produces good works of mercy and justice. You can't have one without the other. Jesus and this lawyer agree, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, iterate the same thing, they utter the same thing to us, that we walk in these. There's, there's kind of three main imperatives of the Bible. Two of them we're very familiar with, and the third one I don't think we're as familiar with. The first one is the great commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're familiar with that. In fact, this lawyer quotes that, and there are other places in the New Testament, Mark chapter 12, Matthew 22, that utter the same truth. That, that is what, that, that's kind of what, what the law hangs on. That's, that's part of it. That's the whole goal is for, for us to worship and love God alone, but also to love our neighbor as ourself. We're familiar with that. And then we've got the Great Commission, which is to go into all of the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Jesus Christ has commanded. We're familiar with the call to discipleship, but so often we forget about the great requirement. You say, Pastor, what's that? Let's hear Matthew, I'm sorry, Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. Listen to what the scriptures say. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord suggest of you? No. What does the Lord require of you, people of God? To do justice, to love kindness or mercy, interchangeable meaning there, and to walk humbly with your God. And this is where I want to drill down today. What does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself? What does it mean to be a good gospel neighbor who takes this great requirement seriously? And so we kind of we, we zoom out back into the, the conversation between Jesus and this expert in the law. And he says, okay, I've got the law. You said it's right. Um, and he's starting to see what a tall order he has to live up to. To love God perfectly and to love neighbor perfectly. How am I ever going to live up to that? So he, he begins to maneuver the conversation and he says, Okay, Jesus, just, who, who would, I'm just asking for a friend here, hypothetically speaking, who would you say my neighbor is? And that's the second question we're looking at here. Who is my neighbor? And this is where we're going to spend the, the majority of our time here. Our neighbor is anyone, uh, anyone in need is potentially my neighbor. Let me say that again. Anyone in need is potentially my neighbor. Let me show you. So, so Jesus Jesus approaches this man as he's, as he's digging down in the conversation, this expert in the law, and he, and, he, and he answers his question by telling him a story. Now, when you think about the main character of this story, most of us presume that it is the good Samaritan, that it is the man who does what the other men do not do. But when you think about it, the man that the entire story revolves around is the man I think, that, let me just say it this way, I think this story should be named The Naked, Bloody Guy in the Ditch, all right? That's a better title for it, because the whole story revolves around that. I, I get it, it doesn't sound good in children's Bibles, so that's probably why they didn't do it like that, but that's really who the whole story revolves around, is the naked, bloody guy in the ditch, and, and, and I'm just going to go ahead and show you my cards here. 
I think that's who we need to, to see ourselves in, is the guy in the ditch more than anything else. Because you can't be the guy on the road who helps the guy in the ditch until you see yourself as the guy in the ditch. So let's dig in and I'll explain a little bit more here. Jesus, he tells a story to illustrate this, to, to, to answer the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Who is it that you've called me to lay down my life for, to serve, to love as I love myself? And we don't love anyone as much as we love ourselves. amen? We, we don't. And so he says, you're, you're called to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and he tells a story and he says, um, you know, there was this, there was this guy. And, and he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jerusalem to Jericho, I've actually had the opportunity to be in both of those places before. Jerusalem and Jericho are only about 15 minutes apart. But here's the, here's the thing. From Jerusalem down to Jericho is about a 3,000-foot uh, decrease in elevation. And so it is a pretty treacherous road down the side of a mountain. And, and there's really only one place that has a lower elevation than Jericho, and that's the Dead Sea. It's really close to the Dead Sea. And so it's, it's I, I think it's something like 1,000 feet below sea level is where Jericho is. It's the, like one of the oldest cities in the world. And, 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 and so this guy is heading down on this road from Jerusalem uh, to, to Jericho. And, and, and what happens is this guy, um, he, he falls into a, a set of bad circumstances where uh, he's, he's robbed, where he's stripped and he's He's beaten and he's half dead and he's in a ditch. And, and so that's the guy, that's the situation. And Jesus, trying to answer this question about who is my neighbor, paints this picture that, that this guy probably would have related to a lot. Because he, he shows these, the, the, a priest, a Jewish priest, and a, and a Levite, also a Jewish man. And, and, and he shows that these two people walk by the man. And when they see him, now keep in mind the man in the ditch is a Jew. So God's chosen people, the man in the ditch and the first two guys that walk by, when they see him, they stick to the other side of the road because they don't want to be associated with this man in a ditch. Now, there are loads of reasons that we could justify this situation with. Well, the priest would be ceremonially unclean for seven days if he went over and touched an almost dead man. How could he do his priestly duties? We could go on and on and on about that, but Jesus doesn't seem to entertain those thoughts in the parable, does he? Instead, he wants us to focus on entering into the story with the man in the ditch. And so, uh, it, when you think about yourself as the man in the ditch, which I think we need to think about, and you see the people that look like you, that live like you walking by, it's almost like you're on a desert island and all of a sudden you see an airplane. And that airplane, you know that airplane sees you because the smoke signals are going up and they're waving at you from the plane. Hey, I see you. And they just keep flying by. Could you imagine how discouraged the man in the ditch would be at that moment? He'd probably give up hope at that point if he's half dead. And these two men that are supposed to share life with him, supposed to enter into his story because they have so much in common, pass him by. Can you imagine the discouragement that he would feel? But I don't want us to dismiss ourselves from being like those two men on the road too quickly. I mean, can you imagine walking down a dark alley at night and coming across a bloody man that's moaning and groaning in the gutter? Can you imagine that? What do you think you would do? 
I, I would be just like those two men that walked by. This is, this is freaky. i got to protect my kids. Let's get out of here kind of a thing. Because it could be dangerous. It would be uncomfortable and, 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 and all of those things. But, but what we see happen that's so shocking is that this Samaritan man, um, he, you would expect him to cross the road just to step on the Jew. Because that's how hostile uh, the racial and cultural tension was between Samaritans and Jews. That's what you would expect to happen. But instead he crosses the road to serve the man that is so different than him. So it, it wasn't race that brought them together more than anything. It was this common need that the man had, and, and the Samaritan wanted to meet the need. He wanted to show mercy. Now, we don't know much about the Samaritan man's story individually, whether he'd had this life-changing moment that made him very merciful. But what we do know this, that in general, Samaritans were people to be pitied above all by the Jews because of, of uh, just of their story of being half Jewish, half Samaritan. They didn't really belong, or half Jewish and half Gentile. They didn't really belong anywhere. Uh, the first two men avoided the man in the ditch, and it's understandable for us, but it's not acceptable to Jesus. And so what does the, the, what does the Samaritan man do? This man that couldn't be any different from the guy in the ditch. The guy in the ditch is actually probably quite a bit more wealthy, maybe, than the Samaritan man as well. But he comes over and he leans in. He engages with him in relationship. He, so he meets his emotional needs in that moment. He bandages his wounds. Who knows, maybe he tears a sleeve of his shirt off or his tunic and he begins to bandage the man's wounds. I, he doesn't have a pack of band-aids on his donkey, okay? I can assure you that. He does some kind of a sacrificial thing to, to care for the man's wounds. And he puts the man on his donkey. And then he begins to walk. And he begins to walk to an inn in a, in a nearby city. Maybe it was Jericho, maybe somewhere else. And then he pays the bill for the inn so the man can be restored and renewed. And, and he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to come back. And if he's still here, I'm going to take care of that bill too. He goes above and beyond in the story. And then... Jesus comes out of the story. He's told the story. He comes out of the story, and it's just he and the, the expert in the law there. And he says, he says something interesting. Which of these men proved to be a neighbor? Which, which one showed by his behavior, by the way that he lived, that he was actually a neighbor to this man? Which one proved to be a neighbor? And then the expert in the law says, the one who showed mercy... And Jesus gives them this imperative. Remember, this whole thing's about eternal life. And then it gets down to the neighbor thing. And he says, if you go and do this, then you can be saved. If you're, if you're looking to do this thing on your own, go and do this. But what we know to be true about the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus saves us not because of how great we are, but in spite of how great we are. And then he saves us by grace so that we can see people who need grace and mercy and give that love to them. And I want to just drill down for the next 15 minutes or so on some priorities of showing mercy to our neighbors. Just really uh, applicable things. And I want to do that by showing you 
four words that I gather, they may not be explicit in this text, but I gather from the story four words that will serve as priorities for us to showing mercy to our neighbors. And here are the four words. Proximity, dignity, compassion, sacrifice. Proximity, dignity, compassion, sacrifice. Let's dig in here right now to this idea of of proximity. The way that we show mercy, Jesus wants to continue to bring it back to what are you actually doing with what you say you believe? The way that we show mercy reveals how much mercy we think we have received. Let me say that again. The way that we show mercy reveals how much mercy we think that we have received. The first two men that walked down the road did not think too highly of the mercy that they had received. They were priests and Levites for that matter. I mean, they they had it all together from a Jewish standpoint. And so what we see from what Jesus teaches is that a life that exhibits mercy is a life that's been touched by mercy. But, but this area of the, the Christian's life is among the easiest of places to neglect, especially in our context. The only way to stay near to the heart of God and his desire for us to show mercy, church, is to continuously be reminded of our own need for mercy. When we are continuously reminded of how much we need the mercy of Jesus, mercy will flow from your life. Legalism and judgment will have no place Because God has not treated us that way. He has not treated us as orphans. He has treated us as sons and daughters. And when you realize that you are a son or a daughter of the Most High King and you did nothing to get there, you live differently. That's the first thing that we got. That's the presupposition of showing mercy for us. The Good Samaritan is only a good Samaritan because Jesus was a great Samaritan. To have an intentional proximity to those who need mercy is a call for Christians to enter into the mess. I mean, you think about this, the story of the good Samaritan, the man crosses the road. You think about Jesus, the great Samaritan, he crosses the threshold of eternity and comes into the temporary. He puts, the scriptures tell us that he puts on flesh and blood. And I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. He says, and he moved into our neighborhood. Jesus became our neighbor because we couldn't become his. He became our neighbor. He saw us in the ditch. Yet many of us can easily be, myself included as you're about to hear, selectively blind to the call for mercy. And it's because, one of the reasons is because of our advantages of the resources that God has given us. We can be, we, we don't have to drive by the guy in the ditch. We can just go another way. We don't have to open the door to the person that's asking us to. We can just tune them out. Proximity is key in showing mercy. And proximity serves, for our purpose, serves to answer this question. Who are the people right in front of me that are my neighbors that I'm not seeing right now? Because proximity for us, church, those things that are close to us, prove what we believe about dignity. 
In other words, what I do with the people right in front of me proves what I believe about the innate value of human beings created in God's image. This, this, um, this story reminds me, you know, it's funny as a pastor, let me say it this way, it's funny as a pastor how um, you find yourself living in the text that you're preaching, right? And you, you, always, you, you always think, um, man, if I could just find an illustration to illustrate that point, and then sometimes your life becomes the illustration unintentionally. And uh, that happened this week. Um, I hesitate to tell you this, actually, because I'm so embarrassed by how sinful I am, but um, I had a horrific Monday uh, after Easter. We had a great service. Everything was awesome. Like the Lego sense, everything is awesome. Like, it was, it was good. Sunday was awesome. And then Monday hit. And, man, I felt like the devil was beating me down at every angle. A few things happened. Conversations happened that were just really discouraging and isolating. And then all of a sudden... I check the mail and I get this letter in the mail that says that my family no longer has health insurance. <laughs> I have four kids. I can't, we can't go like a minute without health insurance, right? And so I am freaking out because everything is kind of, you know, those days where everything just kind of piles on top. It was one of those days. And uh, I had realized that our insurance had been canceled and in and, and like five or six days we weren't going to have anything and so that I call him I'm on the string of phone calls with like several different people over the course of three hours and I realize uh, that our family has now been put on on Medicaid insurance and that's a that's a great resource uh, for some for some folks but for for us in this situation it wasn't what we had in mind and so uh, and then as I'm talking to the insurance company they say the only way for you to get this settled is for you to go down to the Department of Family and Child Services and tell them the situation. And I'm thinking, okay, this can't be, I, I, I said, can I call? And they're like, yeah, they, they don't really answer the phone, you're going to have to go down there. And so, um, <laughs> and so I think, okay, that'll be great. Uh, I've got a stack day tomorrow, uh, so I'll just set everything aside and go do that. That'll be great. And, uh, and so I get there a half hour early, and as I walk up, there is a line of like 50 people a half hour before the, the place opens, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is never going to work out. And then I, I get out of my truck, and I go, and I, I sit down, and, um, uh, and, and I had all these assumptions going through my mind about um, the types of people that I was sitting around, and God just broke me. I, I was sitting next to Jesse and a lady that I didn't catch her name, and and I, I just, I was starting to ask Jesse a story, and Jesse was like, man, you know, I, I used to be a mechanic, I'm from New Jersey, and he was telling me about his career in Georgia, and how successful it was until his back went out, and, and I couldn't work anymore, and I was so tempted to just look at him as a guy who was just trying to draw a check or whatever, but when I heard his heart and his discouragement, my demeanor completely changed. And then, you know, I hadn't had a quiet time that morning, and so the other lady next to me is listening to, like, soulful Kurt Franklin gospel music, and I, I just start singing along with her because uh, I knew this jam that she was listening to, and she's got her devotional out, and we're talking about 2 Samuel 6 together, and the Lord just met us there. And I found out that her story was she was widowed, but she and her husband had adopted nine children, and she was trying to get something figured out with her health insurance. And I, in that moment, wondered if I even knew who God was. You ever have those moments where you're like, God, I am so self-righteous. I was walking in the attitude of the priest, and I almost completely missed God. But the Holy Spirit worked in me to open my heart and my eyes 
to the people that were right in front of me, and that's how God met me. That's the place that proximity plays in your heart for mercy. God will open your eyes to the people that are right in front of you if you ask him to do so, if you seek his presence. Because the gospel frees us from this toxic attitude where we say, if I can't make other people like me, then we can't be in relationship. But many times that is our resistance toward entering into relationship with people that live differently and look differently than we do. As we think, if I, if I can't bring them in and make their lifestyle like my lifestyle, then we really can't have friendship. But that attitude is so toxic, it is so self-righteous, and so self-reliant, and I am all too familiar with it. But when we are able to rely on the Holy Spirit, God's presence in us, we can, church, don't miss this, we can enter into the problems and the deep situations around us without being consumed by them. When we don't think that we're the solution to the problem, we can enter into and have relationship with people whose brokenness looks differently than ours as we're walking by faith. So the question I want you to ask yourself this question this morning, is do I have eyes to see the broken people right in front of me that need mercy? And an, another angle that you could look at it through would be this. Have I used my privilege to shield myself from my neighbor? Because the interesting thing about the parable of the Good Samaritan is that Jesus basically tells this Jewish man, that everybody is your neighbor. Everybody that you come in contact with is your neighbor. They have the potential to be your neighbor. Not just the Jews who are like you. In fact, they actually didn't treat you as a neighbor. But the people that might maybe even have a different faith than you. Was this good Samaritan a Christian? We don't have any evidence of that. No reason to think that he was regenerate. Yet he was his neighbor. Think about that. Doesn't that change the way that we think about serving others? Second thing is this, proximity leads to dignity. How do I see the people that are right in front of me? So the first question was, do I see the opportunities and people right in front of me? The second one, dignity, is similar but nuanced, and it's how do I see them? God is the one that gives and secures human dignity. Think about it this way. It is a byproduct of his role as creator. As creator, he gives definition and identity to his creation. No one else gets to do that. He's the one that creates. One image bearer cannot define another image bearer. That's called oppression and slavery and some of the most worst moments in history of when God's people have gotten this part wrong. Whenever we think that we can give identity to other people, through the way that we treat them. And, and, and what we see is that proximity leads us to the opportunity to draw out dignity in every person. Because every person reflects God's image. There's not one human being in the world that you and I cannot relate to. There's not one. Although we live differently and we look differently, think about this. And, and Reggie Screen, when he preached through last summer, said this. We are 99.9% .9 the same. We're going to focus on the, the tenth of a percent of difference. We are far more similar than we are different. And Jesus gives us the opportunity to draw that out in others. And we all struggle with this. The, the, the priest and the Levite, they saw no dignity in this man. 
because of his condition, despite everything that they had in common. The Samaritan saw something different in his approach. You know what it was? He knew what it was like to be in the ditch. Maybe he wasn't physically in the ditch, but he knew what it was like to be shunned by other people. That's what Jesus focuses on. And we, we all struggle with this idea of dignity and, and how to enter in and draw it out and, and show people that they're made in God's image, whether they follow him or not. God put that in you. And uh, the diagnostic for us checking how we do on the dignity um, kind of scale would be this. Whenever I look at someone in distress and am repelled by them, I'm not seeing dignity in them and I'm thinking that they are not image bearers. That's what happens when we see someone and we're repelled and we say, okay, you know, we got we to get out of here or this person's going to be too needy. I don't really know about this. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drill down in just a second about specifics about mercy ministry in our context, but the heart of just the opportunity that we have to draw out dignity in other people. Only image bearers of God can do that. Only, only Christians have the freedom to be able to do that because we've been freed ourselves. We are more similar than we are different. Third thing is this compassion. The question that we're answering here is this, is my heart moved by grace, by the grace of God to care physically and spiritually, and I would even add emotionally, for my neighbor. You know what compassion is? Compassion is when you and I can look at someone or some situation um, and say, I've been in that ditch, or I could easily be in that ditch. Now, um, let me just say this. Every person in this room, I don't care how much money you've got in the bank right now, if your house is paid for, or if it's not, if you live in an apartment, or if you live with a family member, if you've, if you've got a job where you bring in six figures or you got a job that you know, pays minimum wage, every person in this room is just a couple of poor decisions or circumstances away from being in the ditch. If you don't believe that, you're living in a lie. You're living in a fairy tale. And when you see that reality in your life, it changes the way that you live among image bearers. God gives us the humility to see that that could be us. And the question is, what will we do when we see ourselves in that place? And this is where people really get freaked out, me included. Uh, and and we, we, try to, we try to jump in and show compassion to, to maybe it's the panhandler or the person that we met at the park or, or whoever it is. We have a propensity to enter in from the wrong vantage point with the wrong motives. That is to be the hero ourselves. And there's a there's a, a philosophy uh, about community development that has been in, incredibly helpful for me as I think about mercy ministry, and it's called this, assets-based community development. Assets-based community development. And, and, and here's what an assets-based approach takes. Here's, here's the approach that it takes to mercy ministry. It says this, everyone has something to offer. This is so key. Think about this. You approach someone, they're homeless, they live in a tent, they don't know where they're going to get their, their next meal. They have something to offer you. They have something to offer the world. Not just in their prosperity and in their wealth do they have something to offer to you, but right there in that moment, they have something to offer to all of us. When you believe that, you live differently. This, this idea understands that because everyone is made in God's image, 
Everyone, regardless of all of those differences, has something to offer. The second thing is this. Relationships are what build a community, not resources. Relationships are what build a community, not resources. Now, resources are used through relationships to help a community flourish, but relationships are what build a community. And therefore, we have the freedom as God's people to listen instead of talk at people who live differently than we do. That is a big difference. Whenever you can enter in and listen instead of talking at and trying to show people the seven steps to get to where you are in life. That's not mercy ministry. There's no heart of mercy involved in that. And the last thing I'm going to share, we could go on on this, but I'm just trying to paint a picture for you of this idea of of thinking this way, is that it focuses on development more than just relief. Most of the time when we think about helping the poor or the emotionally poor or the spiritually poor or the physically poor, when we think about helping the poor, we think about what's the quickest way that I can give them a fix to relieve their situation. Maybe it's they need a hotel for a week. Maybe it's, you know, they need some groceries. Maybe it's they need a few bucks for the train, whatever it is. And and those things are all necessary. They are. But I would say over 90% of mercy ministry in the church is that. Yet the greatest asset we have to give is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all we do is throw a few bucks at it. We have relationship to offer and to give. Giving someone a resource is fine. But the the most beautiful thing that you have to give to the world is your relationship. This way of thinking says, I need you as much as you need me. I've got a friend that I I just want to share a brief vignette of his life with uh, who often spends time with the homeless in Gwinnett. He doesn't live here anymore. Uh, He's moved out of the area. But he had a homeless friend who was... um, he was a very gifted man. He had a, he had a career and, and uh, did lots of different kind of trades. But he found himself in a, in a spot where he was homeless for an extended season of time. And his friend, um, my friend, uh, befriended this guy. We'll call him Daniel. And um, Daniel uh, got into this habit of always going over to my friend's house and, and, and wherever he could find him and always asking for material resources. And, and oftentimes my friend would, would give Daniel what he needed uh, if he could. Uh, sometimes he couldn't. But, but one day um, my friend had this idea. He says, you know, because he, he, he's thinking through this assets-based way of thinking about the poor. And, and he's, he comes up to him and he humbly approaches him. And he, and he says, you know, Daniel, we're friends. And, and I want you to know that you have just as much to offer me as I have to offer you. In our friendship, I want, I want to be able to pray with you and for you without our relationship always being about money and resources and material things. And, and, and what my friend told me from that situation was that their relationship shifted at that moment when he realized that the relationship wasn't just built on resources. Now, that takes a great amount of faith to enter in and to see the dignity that are in others. Do you see the difference? That's what God's after for us. So, you know, so you're going to enter into mercy ministry. Maybe you're going to be more prompted and compelled to this week. Will you be taken advantage of when you participate in ministries of mercy? Absolutely. Absolutely you will. Just go into it with that understanding. Will somebody tell you a different story than their true story? Probably so. Um, the same way that I've been taken 
advantage of by people in my own family, right? I mean, it's going to happen. They're people. Uh, Does this mean that you must help every panhandler that you see? No. The Holy Spirit will lead you. Maybe he does call you to help everybody out somehow. Or maybe the Holy Spirit leads you to help some people a little more deeply as you enter into relationship with them. Does this mean that there are not dangerous people in the world? No. Some of the, the poor are criminals, but most are not. Some of the people in your family and workplace are criminals too, but most are not. They just haven't gotten caught yet, you know? I mean, we've got to start, we've got to stop criminalizing the poor in our communities. And to enter in with the faith of Jesus as we build relationships. When we believe that everyone has something to offer, we can enter in without this Messiah complex. Lastly, I just want to land the plane by saying this. Sacrifice. So we looked at proximity, dignity. Uh, We looked at uh, compassion and sacrifice. Does showing mercy cost me anything? When you look at the the story uh, of the the Good Samaritan, um, it cost the guy something to show mercy. He didn't just walk over and say, hey, bud, good luck. But it cost him something to enter into the man's story. It cost him something emotionally. The first thing he was was a friend. It cost him uh, something in his time. I'm sure that wasn't the way he planned to spend his afternoon. It cost him financially. Showing mercy is sacrificial. It costs us something. And as we as a church move into downtown Lawrenceville, this story is only going to be, we're only going to be more aware of the people who are really in need in our community. And I want us to enter in with the right heart. Um, because, because here's the deal. My, my hope is, if I could paint a picture, is that people who are in these urgent crisis needs, who are needing mercy, would pass through several people in our church. Instead of just going straight to the, you know, the elders or when we have deacons, the deacons, and, and looking straight for the corporate church for help, but they would pass through a series of relationships that would be you guys as the poor enter in to the fellowship of New City Church. I just want to offer this from Galatians chapter 6 as we close here. Paul knows that we're tempted to get weary with this type of work. He says this in Galatians 6, 9, and 10, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap harvest if we do not give up so then as we have opportunity as we see our neighbors let us do good to everyone now that good that we do is not always just money all right that good is relational as well let us do good to everyone especially those who belong to the household of faith church we got to believe that our behavior surrounding mercy reveals much more about our spiritual life than we ever would know. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for the naked, bloody man that was found in a ditch and the story that your son Jesus told to teach us about your heart. Father, I ask that you would, um, that you would work in us, that you would draw out the skeletons that we have in the closet with how we think about co-image bearers that are all around us in our community, ones that are of different races, of socioeconomic classes, of different ways of living, different cultures, God. Would you show us the similarities that we have with our neighbors? 
And would we even use that word neighbor more often? Because uh, it is the requirement of what your gospel produces in us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus, you have been the best neighbor to us because you have laid down your life for people dead in the ditch like me. And God, may we believe that so deeply that it begins to flow from us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.